Chapter Six of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, on Eternal Torture. Some time ago, a clergyman was proving to me by arguments many and strong that hell was right, necessary, and just; that it brought glory to God and good to man; that the holiness of God required it as a preventative and the justice of God exacted it as a penalty of sin. I listened quietly till all was over, and silence fell on the reverend denunciator. He ceased, satisfied with his arguments, triumphant in the consciousness that they were crushing and unassailable. But my eyes were fixed on the fair scene, without the library window, on the sacrament of earth, the visible sign of the invisible beauty and the contrast between God's work and the Church's speech came strongly upon me. And all I found to say in answer came in a few words. If I had not heard you mention the name of God, I should have thought you were speaking of the devil. The words, dropped softly and meditatively, had a startling effect. Horror at the blasphemy, indignation at the unexpected result of laboured argument, struggled against a dawning feeling that there must be something wrong in a conception which laid itself open to such a blow. The short answer told more powerfully than half an hour's reasoning. The various classes of orthodox Christian doctrines should be attacked in very different styles by the champions of the great army of free thinkers, who are at the present day besieging the venerable superstitions of the past. Around the deity of Jesus cluster many hallowed memories and fond associations. The worship of centuries has shed around his figure a halo of light, and he has been made into the ideal of humanity. The noblest conceptions of morality, the highest flights of enlightened minds have been enshrined in a human personality and called by the name of Christ. The Christ idea has risen and expanded with every development of human progress, and the Christ of the highest Christianity of the day is far other than the Christ of Augustine, of Thomas a Kempis, of Luther, or Knox. The strivings after light, after knowledge, after holiness of the noblest sons of men have been called by them a following of Jesus. Jesus is baptised in human tears, crucified in human pains, glorified in human hopes. Because of all this, because he is so dear to human hearts, and identified with human struggles, Therefore he should be gently spoken of by all who feel the bonds of the brotherhood of man. The dogma of his deity must be assailed, must be overthrown, because it is false, because it destroys the unity of God, because it veils us from the eternal spirit, the source of all things. But he himself should be reverently spoken of, so far as truthfulness permits. And this dogma, although persistently battled against, should be attacked without anger and without scorn. There are other doctrines which, while degrading in regard to man's conception of God, and therefore deserving of reprobation, yet enshrine great moral truths, and have become bound up with ennobling lessons. Such is the doctrine of the Atonement, which enshrines the idea of selfless love and of self-sacrifice for the good of humanity. There are others again, against which ridicule and indignation may rightly be brought to bear, which are concessions to human infirmity and which belong to the childhood of the race. 
man may be laughed out of his sacraments and out of his devils and indignantly reminded that he insults god and degrades himself by placing a priesthood or mediator between god and his own soul but there is one dogma of orthodox christianity which stands alone in its atrocity which is thoroughly and essentially bad which is without one redeeming feature which is as blasphemous towards god as it is injurious to man on it therefore should be poured out unsparingly the bitterest scorn and the sharpest indignation there is no good human emotion enlisted on the side of an eternal hell it is not hallowed by human love or human longings it does not enshrine human aspirations nor is it the outcome of human hopes in support of this no appeal can be made to any feeling of the nobler side of our nature nor does eternal fire stimulate our higher faculties it acts only on the lower baser part of man it excites fear distrust of god terror of his presence it may scare from evil occasionally but can never teach good it sees god in the lightning flash that slays but not in the sunshine which invigorates in the avalanche which buries a village in its fall but not in the rich promise of the vineyard and the joyous beauty of the summer day hell has driven thousands half mad with terror it has driven monks to the solitary deserts nuns to the sepulchre of the nunnery but has it ever caused one soul of man to rejoice in the father of all and pant as the heart panteth after the water springs for the presence of god it is only just to state in attacking this as a christian doctrine that though believed in by the vast majority of christians the most enlightened of that very indefinite body repudiate it with one voice it is well known how the great broad church leader frederick denison morris endeavoured to harmonise on this point his bible and his strong moral sense and failed in so doing as all must fail who would reconcile two contradictories how he fought with that word eternal struggled to prove that whatever else it might mean it did not mean everlasting in our modern sense of the word that eternal death being the antithesis to eternal life must mean a state of ignorance of the eternal one even as its opposite was the knowledge of god that therefore men could rise from eternal death i did so rise every day in this life and might so rise in the life to come noble was his protest against this awful doctrine fettered as he was by undue reverence for and clinging to the bible his appeal to the moral sense in man as the arbiter of all doctrine has borne good fruit and his labours have opened a road to free thought greater than he expected or even hoped many other clergymen have followed in his steps the word eternal has been wrangled over continually but however they arrive there all broad churchmen unite in the conclusion that it does not cannot shall not mean literally lasting for ever this school of thought has laid much stress on the fondness of orientals for imagery they have pointed out that the jewish word gehenna is the same as gehinom or valley of hinnom and have seen in the state of that valley the materials for the worm that dieth not and the fire that is not quenched they show how by a natural transition the place into which were thrown the bodies of the worst criminals became the type of punishment in the next world and the valley where children were sacrificed to moloch gave its name to the infernal abode of devils from that valley jesus drew his awful picture suggested by the pale lurid fires ever creeping there 
mingling their ghastly flames with the decaying bodies of the dishonoured dead. In all this there is probably much truth, and many broad churchmen are content to accept this explanation, and so retain their belief in the supernatural character of the Bible, while satisfying their moral sense by rejecting its most immoral dogma. Among the evangelicals, only one voice, so far as I know, is heard to protest against eternal torture, and all honour is due to the Reverend Samuel Minton, for his rare courage in defying on this point the opinion of his world, and braving the censure which has been duly inflicted on him. He seems to make eternal the equivalent of irredeemable in some cases, and of everlasting in others. He believes that the wicked will be literally destroyed, burnt up, consumed, the fact that the fire is eternal by no means implies, he remarks, that that which is cast into the fire should be likewise eternal, and that the fire is unquenchable does not prove that the chaff is unconsumable. Eternal destruction, he explains, as irreparable destruction, final and irreversible extinction. This theory should have more to recommend it to all who believe in the supernatural inspiration of the Bible than the broad church explanation. It uses far less violence towards the words of Scripture, and indeed a very fair case may be made out for it from the Bible itself. It is scarcely necessary to add to this small list of dissentients from Orthodox Christianity the Unitarian body. I do not suppose that there is such a phenomenon in existence as a Unitarian Christian who believes in an eternal hell. With these small exceptions, the mass of Christians hold this dogma, but for the most part carelessly and uncomprehendingly. Many are ashamed of it, even while duteously confessing it, and gabble over the sentences in their creed which acknowledge it in a very perfunctory manner. People of this kind do not like to talk about hell, it is better to think of heaven. Some Christians, however, hold it strongly, and proclaim their belief boldly. The members of the Evangelical Alliance usually make the profession of it a condition of admittance into their body, while many high-church divines think that a sharp declaration of their belief in it is needed by loyalty towards God and charity to the souls of men. I wish I could believe that all who profess this dogma did not realise it, and only accepted it because their fathers and mothers taught it to them. But what can one say to such statements as the following, quoted from Father Furness by W. R. Gregg in his splendid Enigmas of Life? I take it as a specimen of Roman Catholic authorised teaching. Children are asked, How will your body be when the devil has been striking it every moment for a hundred million years without stopping? A girl of eighteen is described as dressed in fire. She wears a bonnet of fire. It is pressed down all over her head. It burns her head. It burns into the skull. It scorches the bone of the skull and makes it smoke. A boy is boiled. Listen, there is a sound just like that of a kettle boiling. The blood is boiling in the scalded veins of that boy. The brain is boiling and bubbling in his head. The marrow is boiling in his bones. Nay, even the poor little babies are not exempt from torture. One is in a red-hot oven. Hear how it screams to come out. See how it turns and twists about in the fire. You can see on the face of this little child, the fair, pure, innocent baby face, what you see on the faces of all in hell, despair, desperate and horrible. Surely this man realised what he taught, but then he was that half-human being, a priest. 
Dr. Pusey, too, has a word to say about hell. Gather in mind all that is most loathsome, most revolting, the most treacherous, malicious, coarse, brutal, inventive, fiendish cruelty, unsoftened by any remains of human feeling, such as thou couldst not endure for a single hour. Hear those yells of blaspheming, concentrated hate, as they echo along the lurid vault of hell. Protestantism chimes in, and Spurgeon speaks of hell. Wilt thou think it is easy to lie down in hell, with the breath of the eternal fanning the flames? Wilt thou delight thyself to think that God will invent torments for thee, sinner? When the damned jingle the burning irons of their torment, they shall say for ever when they howl, echo cries, for ever. I may allude, to conclude my quotations, to a description of hell which I myself heard from an eminent prelate of the English church, one who is a scholar and a gentleman, a man of moderate views in church matters, by no means a zealot in an ordinary way, in preaching to a country congregation composed mainly of young men and girls, he warned them specially against sins of the flesh, and threatened them with the consequent punishment in hell. Then, in language which I cannot reproduce, for I should not dare to sully my pages by repeating what I then listened to in horrified amazement, there ensued a description, drawn out in careful particulars of the state of the suffering body in hell, so sickening in its details that it must suffice to say of it that it was a description founded on the condition of a corpse flung out on a dung-heap, and left there to putrefy, with the additional horror of creeping, slowly burning flames, and this state of things was to go on, as he impressed on them with terrible energy, for ever and ever, decaying but ever renewing. I should almost ask pardon of tender-hearted men and women for laying before them language so abominable, but I urge on all who are offended by it that this is the teaching given to our sons and daughters in the present day. Father Furness, Dr. Pusey, Mr. Spurgeon, an English bishop. Surely these are honoured names, and in quoting them I quote from the teaching of Christendom. Nor mind the fault if the language be unfit for printing. I quote, because if we only assert, Christians are quick to say, you are misrepresenting our beliefs. And I quote from writers of the present day only, that none may accuse me of hurling at Christians reproaches for a doctrine they have outgrown or softened down. Still, I own that it seems scarcely credible that a man should believe this and remain sane. Nay, should preach this and walk calmly home from his church with God's sunshine smiling on the beautiful world, and after preaching it, should sit down to a comfortable dinner and a very likely a quiet pipe, as though hell did not exist and its awful misery and fierce despair. It is said that there is no reason that we should not be contented in heaven while others suffer in hell since we know how much misery there is in this world, and yet enjoy ourselves in spite of the knowledge. I say deliberately of every one who does realise the misery of this world and remains indifferent to it, who enjoys his own share of the good things of this life, without helping his brother, who does not stretch out his hand to lift the fallen or raise his voice on behalf of the downtrodden and oppressed, that that man is living a life which is the very antithesis of a divine life, a life which has in it no beauty and no nobility, but is selfish, despicable, and mean. And is this the life which we are to regard as the model of heavenly beauty? Is the power to lead this life for ever to be our reward for our self-devotion and self-sacrifice here on earth? Is a supreme selfishness 
to crown unselfishness at last. But this is the life which is to be the lot of the righteous in heaven. Snatched from a world of flames, caught up in the air to meet their descending Lord, his saints are to return with him to the heaven whence he came. There, crowned with golden crowns, they are to spend eternity hymning the Lamb who saved them to the music of golden harps, harps whose melody is echoed by the curses and the wailings of the lost, for below is a far different scene. For there the sinners are tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. It is worth while to gaze for a moment at the scene of future felicity. There is the throne of God and rejoicing crowds. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, so goes out the command, and they rejoice because God has avenged them on her. And again they say, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up for ever and ever. Truly God must harden the hearts of his saints in heaven, as of old he hardened Pharaoh's heart, if they are to rejoice over the anguished multitude below, and to bear to live amid the lurid smoke ascending from the burning bodies of the lost. To me the idea is so unutterably loathsome, that I marvel how Christians endure to retain such language in their sacred books, for I would note that the awful picture drawn above is not of my doing. It is not the scoffing caricature of an unbeliever, it is heaven, as described by St. John the Divine." If this heaven is true, I do not hesitate to say that it is the duty of every human being to reject it utterly and to refuse to enter it. We might even appeal to Christians by the example of their own Jesus, who could not be content to remain in heaven himself while men went to hell, but came down to redeem them from endless suffering. Yet they who ought to imitate him, who do, many of them, lead beautiful lives of self-devotion and compassion, are suddenly, on death, to lose all this which makes them partakers of the divine nature, and are to be content to win happiness for themselves, careless that millions of their brethren are in woe unspeakable. They are to reverse the aim of their past lives. They are to become selfish instead of loving, hard instead of selfless, indifferent instead of loving, hard instead of tender, which is the better reproduction of the mind of Christ, the good Samaritan tending the wounded man, or the stern inquisitor gloating over the fire which consumes heretics to the greater glory of God. Yet the latter is the ideal of heavenly virtue. Never will they who truly love man be content to snatch at bliss for themselves while others suffer, or endure to be crowned with glory while they are crowned with thorns. Better, far better, to suffer in hell and share the pains of the lost than to have a heart so hard, a nature so degraded, as to enjoy the bliss of heaven, rejoicing over, or even disregarding, the woes of hell. But there is worse than physical torture in the picture of hell. Pain is not its darkest aspect. Of all the thoughts with which the heart of man has outraged the eternal righteousness, there is none so appalling, none so blasphemous, as that which declares that even one soul, made by the supreme good, shall remain during all eternity under the power of sin. Divines have wearied themselves in describing the horrors of the Christian hell, but it is not the furnace of flames, not the undying worm, not the fire which never may be quenched, that revolters most, hideous as are these images, they are not the worst terror of hell. 
Who does not know how St. Francis, believing himself ordained to be lost everlastingly, fell on his knees and cried, O oh my God, if I am indeed doomed to hate thee during eternity, at least suffer me to love thee while I live here. To the righteous heart the agony of hell is a far worse one than physical torture could inflict. It is the existence of men and women who might have been saints, shut out from hope of holiness for evermore, God's children, the work of his hands, gnashing their teeth at a father who has cast them down for ever from the life he might have given. It is love everlastingly hated, good everlastingly trampled underfoot, God everlastingly baffled and defied. Worst of all, it is a room in the Father's house where his children may hunger and thirst after righteousness, but never, never can be filled. Quote, Depart, O sinner, to the chain, enter the eternal cell, to all that's good and true and right, to all that's fair and fond and bright, to all of holiness and right, bid thou thy last farewell. End quote. Would to God that Christian men and women would ponder it well, and think it out for themselves, and when they go into the worst parts of our great cities, and their hearts almost break with the misery there, then let them remember how that misery is but a faint picture of the endless, hopeless misery to which the vast majority of their fellow-men are doomed. Christian reader, do not be afraid to realise the future in which you say you believe, and which the God of love has prepared for the home of some of his children. Imagine yourself, or any dear to you, plunged into guilt from which there is no Redeemer, and where the voice cannot penetrate of him that speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. In the well-weighed words of a champion of Christian orthodoxy, think there is no reason to believe that hell is only a punishment for past offences. In that dark world, sin and misery reproduce each other in infinite succession. What if the sin perpetuates itself, if the prolonged misery may be the offspring of the prolonged guilt? Ponder it well, and, if you find it true, then cast out from your creed the belief in a Jesus who loved the lost. Blot out from your Bible every verse that speaks of a father's heart. Tear from your prayer-books every page that prays to a father in heaven. If the lowest of God's creatures is to be left in the foul embraces of sin for ever, God cannot be the eternal righteousness the unconquerable love. For what sort of righteousness is that which rests idly contented in a heaven of bliss, while millions of souls capable of righteousness are bound by it in helpless sin? What sort of love is that which is satisfied to be repulsed and is willing to be hated? As long as God is righteous, as long as God is love, so long is it impossible that men and women shall be left by him for ever in a state to which our worst dens of earth are a very paradise of beauty and purity. Bible writers may have erred, but Thou continuest holy, O Thou worship of Israel. There is one revelation that cannot err, and that is written by God's finger on every human heart. What man recoils from doing, even at his lowest, can never be done by his Creator, from whose inspiration he draws every righteous thought. Is there one father, however brutalised, who would deliberately keep his child in sin because of a childish fault? One mother who would aimlessly torture her son, keeping him alive but to torment? Yet this nothing less, nay a thousand times more, for it is this multiplied infinitely by infinite power of torture, 
This is what Christians ask us to believe about our Father and our God, a glimmer from the radiance of whose throne falls on to our earth, when men love their enemies and forgive freely those who wrong them, if this so-called orthodox belief is right, then is their gospel of the love of God to the world a delusion and a lie. If this is true, the teaching of Jesus to publicans and harlots of the fatherhood of God is a cruel mockery of our divinest instincts. The tale of the good shepherd, who could not rest while one sheep was lost, is the bitterest irony. But this awful dogma is not true, and the love of God cradles his creation. Not one son of the father's family shall be left under the power of sin. To be an eternal blot on God's creation, an endless reproach to his maker's wisdom, an everlasting and irreparable mistake. No amount of argument, however powerful, should make us believe a doctrine from which our hearts recoil, with such shuddering horror, as they do from this doctrine of eternal torture and eternal sin. There is a divine instinct in the human heart, which may be trusted as an arbiter between right and wrong. No supernatural revelation, no miracle, no angel from heaven, should have power to make us accept as divine that which our hearts proclaim as vile and devilish. It is not true faith to crush down our moral sense beneath the hoof of credulity. True faith believes in God only as a power which makes for righteousness, and wrecks little of threats or curses which would force her to accept that which conscience disapproves. And what is more, if it were possible that God were not what we dream, if he were not righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works, then were it craven cowardice to worship him at all. It has been well said that to worship simple power without virtue is nothing but devil-worship. In that case, it were nobler to refuse to praise him and to take what he might send. Then, indeed, we must say, with John Stuart Mill, in that burst of passion which reads so strangely in the midst of his passionless logic, that if I am told that this is justice and love, and that if I do not call it so, God will send me to hell, then to hell I'll go. I have purposely put first my strong reprobation of eternal hell, because of its own essential hideousness, and because, were it ever so true, I should deem myself disgraced by acknowledging it as either loving or good. But it is, however, a satisfaction to note the feebleness of the arguments advanced in support of this dogma, and to find that justice and holiness, as well as love, frown on the idea of an eternal hell. The first argument put forth is this. God has made a law which man breaks. Man must therefore, in justice, suffer the penalty of his transgression. This, like so many of the orthodox arguments, sounds just and right, and at first we perfectly agree with it. The instinct of justice in our own breasts confirms this statement, and looking abroad into the world we see its truth proved by facts. Law is around us on every side. Man is placed in a realm of law. He may strive against the laws which encircle him, but he will only dash himself to pieces against a rock. He is under a code which he breaks at his peril. Here is perfect justice. A justice absolutely unwavering, deaf to cries, unseducible by flatteries, unalloyed by favouritism. A law exists. Break it, and you suffer the inevitable consequences. So far, then, the orthodox argument is sound and strong. But now it takes a sudden leap. The penalty of the broken law is hell. Why? 
what common factor is there between a lie and the lake of fire in which all liars shall have their part nature is absolutely against the orthodox corollary because hell as a punishment of sin is purely arbitrary the punishment might quite as well have been something else but in nature the penalty of a broken law is always strictly in character with the law itself and is derived from it men imagine the most extraordinary judgment a nation is given to excessive drinking and is punished with cattle plague or shows leanings towards popery and is chastised with cholera it is as reasonable to believe this as it would be to expect that if a child fell downstairs he would be picked up covered with blisters from burning instead of his receiving his natural punishment of being bruised why because i lie and forgot god should i be punished with fire and brimstone fire is not derivable from truth nor is brimstone a stimulus to memory there is also a strange confusion in many minds about the punishment of sin a child is told not to put his hand into the fire he does so and is burnt the burning is a punishment he is told for what not for disobedience to the parent as is generally said but for disregarding the law of nature which says that fire burns one often hears it said god's punishment for sin are not equal one man sins once and suffers for it all his life while another sins twenty times and is not punished at all by no means the two men both break a moral law and suffer a moral degradation one of them breaks in addition some physical law and suffers a physical injury people see injustice where none exists because they will not take the trouble to distinguish what laws are broken when material punishments follow there is nothing arbitrary in nature cause and effect rule in her realm hell is then unjust in the first place because physical torture has nothing in common with moral guilt it is unjust secondly because it is excessive sin say theologians is to be punished infinitely because sin is an offence committed against an infinite being of course then good must logically be rewarded infinitely because it is duty offered to an infinite being there is no man who has never done a single good act so every man deserves an infinite reward there is no man who has never done a single bad act so every man deserves an infinite punishment therefore every man deserves both an infinite reward and an infinite punishment which as euclid says is absurd and this is quite enough answer to the proposition but i must protest in passing against this notion of sin against god as properly understood if by this expression is only meant that every sin committed is a sin against god because every sin is done against man's higher nature which is god in man then indeed there is no objection to be made to it but this is not what is generally meant by the phrase it usually means that we are able as it were to injure god in some way to dishonour him to affront him to trouble him by sin we make him angry we provoke him to wrath because of this feeling on his own part he punishes us and demands satisfaction surely a moment's reflection must prove to any reasonable being that sin against god in this sense is perfectly impossible what can the littleness of man do against the greatness of the eternal imagine a speck of dust troubling the depths of the ocean an aphis burdening an oak tree with its weight each is far more probable than that a man could ruffle the perfect serenity of god 
Suppose I stand on a lawn watching an ant heap. An ant twinkles his feelers at me scornfully. Do I fly into a passion and rush onto the insect to destroy it or seize it and slowly torture it? Yet I am far less above the level of the ant than God is above mine. But I must add a word here to guard against the misapprehension that in saying this I am depriving man of the strength he finds in believing that he is personally known to God and an object of his care. Were I the ant's creator, familiar with all the workings of its mind, I might regret, for its sake, the pride and scorn of its maker shown by its action, because it was not rising to the perfection of nature of which it was capable. So, in that nature in which we live and move, which is too great to regard anything as little, which is around all and in all, and which we believe to be conscious of all, there is, I cannot but think, some feeling which, for want of a better term, we must call a desire for the growth of his creatures, because in this growth lies their own happiness, and a corresponding feeling of regret when they injure themselves. But I say this in fear and reverence, knowing that human language has no terms in which to describe the nature we adore, and conscious that, in the very act of putting ideas about him into words, I degrade the ideas, and they no longer fully answer to the thought in my own mind. Silent adoration befits man best in the presence of his Maker, only it is right to protest against the more degrading conceptions of him, although the higher conceptions are themselves far below what he really is. Sin, then, being done against one's self only, cannot deserve an eternity of torture. Sin injures man already, why should he be further injured by endless agony? The infliction of pain is only justifiable, when it is the means of conveying to the sufferer himself a gain greater than the suffering inflicted. Therefore punishment is only righteous when reformatory. But endless torture cannot aim at reformation, it has no aim beyond itself, and can only arise therefore from vengeance and vindictiveness, which we have shown to be impossible with God. Hell is unjust, secondly, because its punishment is excessive and aimless. It is also unjust, because to avoid it needs an impossible perfection. It is no answer to this to say that there is an escape offered to us through the atonement made by Jesus Christ. Why should I be called on to escape like a criminal from that which I do not deserve? God makes man imperfect, frail, sinful, utterly unable to keep perfectly a perfect law. He therefore fails, and is, what, to be strengthened? By no means. He is to go to hell. The statement of this suffices to show its injustice. We cavil not at the wisdom which made us what we are, but we protest against the idea which makes God so cruelly unjust as to torture babies because they are unable to walk as steadily as a full-grown man. Hell is unjust, in the third place, because man does not deserve it. To all this it will probably be retorted. You are arguing as though God's justice were the same as man's, and you are therefore capable of judging it, an assumption which is unwarrantable and is grossly presumptuous. To which I reply, if by God's justice you do not mean justice at all, but refer to some divine attribute of which we know nothing, all my strictures on it fall to the ground. Only do not commit the inconsistency of arguing that hell is just, when by just you mean some unknown quality, and then propping up your theories with proofs drawn from human justice. It would perhaps tend to clearness in argument, if you gave this divine attribute some other name instead of using it for an expression which has already a definite meaning.
the justice of hell disposed of, we turn to the love of God. I have never heard it stated that hell is a proof of his great love to the world, but I take the liberty myself of drawing attention to it in this light. God, we are told, existed alone before aught was created. There, perfect in himself, in happiness, in glory, he might have remained, say orthodox theologians. Then we have a right to ask in the name of charity, why did he, happy himself, create a race of beings of whom the vast majority were to be endlessly and hopelessly miserable? Was this love? He created man to glorify him. But was it loving to create those who would only suffer for his glory? Was it not rather a gigantic an inconceivable selfishness? Man may be saved if he will. That is not to the point. God foreknew that some would be lost, and yet he made them. With all reverence I say it, God had no right to create sentient beings, if of one of them it can ever be truly said, good were it for that man that he had never been born. He who creates imposes on himself by the very act of creation duties towards his creatures. If God be self-conscious and moral, it is an absolute certainty that the whole creation is moving towards the final good of every creature in it. We did not ask to be made, we suffered not when we existed not. God, who has laid existence on us without our consent, is responsible for our final good, and is bound by every tie of righteousness and justice, not to speak of love, to make the existence he gave us unasked, a blessing and not a curse to us. Parents feel this responsibility towards the children they bring into the world, and feel themselves bound to protect and to make happy those who, without them, had not been born. But if hell be true, then every man and woman is bound not to fulfil the divine command of multiplying the race, since by doing so they are aiding to fill the dungeons of hell, and they will hereafter have their sons and daughters cursing the day of their birth and overwhelming their parents with reproaches for having brought into the world a body which God was thus enabled to curse with the awful gift of an immortal soul. We must notice also that God, who is said to love righteousness, can never crush out righteousness in any human soul. There is no one so utterly degraded as to be without one sign of good. Among the lowest and vilest of our population we find beautiful instances of kindly feeling and generous help, can any woman be more degraded than she who only values her womanhood as a means of gain, who drinks, fights, and steals? Let those who have been among such women say that, if they have not been cheered sometimes by a very ray of the light of God, when the most degraded has shown kindness to an equally degraded sister, and when the very gains of sin have been purified by being poured into the lap of a suffering and dying companion, Shall love and devotion, however feeble, and selfishness, and sympathy, however transitory in their action, shall these stars of heaven be quenched in the blackness of the pit of hell? If it be so, then, verily, God is not the righteous Lord who loveth righteousness. But we cannot leave out of our impeachment of hell that it injures man as much as it degrades his conceptions of God. It cultivates selfishness and fear, two of his basest passions, there has scarcely perhaps been born into this world, this century, a purer and more loving soul than that of the late John Keeble, the author of The Christian Year. Yet what a terrible effect this belief had on him! He must cling to his belief in hell, because otherwise he would have no certainty of heaven. Quote, 
But where is then the stay of contrite hearts? Of old they lean on thy eternal word, but with the sinner's fear their hope departs, fast linked as thy great name to thee, O Lord. That name by which thy faithful hope is past, that we should endless be for joy or woe, and if the treasures of thy wrath should waste, thy lovers must their promised heaven forego. That is to say, in plain English, I cannot give up the certainty of hell for others, because if I do, I shall have no certainty of heaven for myself, and I would rather know that millions of my brethren should be tormented for ever than remain doubtful about my own everlasting enjoyment. Surely a loving heart would say instead, O oh God, let us all die and remain unconscious for ever, rather than that one soul should suffer everlastingly. The terrible selfishness of the Christian belief degrades the noblest soul. The horror of hell makes men lose their self-control and think only of their personal safety, just as we see men run wild sometimes at a shipwreck when the gain of a minute means life. The belief in hell fosters religious pride and hatred, for all religious people think that they themselves at least are sure of heaven. If then they are going to rejoice through all eternity over the sufferings of the lost, why should they treat them with kindness or consideration here? Thus hell becomes the mother of persecution. For the heretic, the enemy of the Lord, there is no mercy and no forgiveness. Then the saints persuade themselves that true charity obliges them to persecute, for suffering may either save the heretic himself by forcing him to believe, or may at least scare others from sharing his heresy, and so preserve them from eternal fire. And they are right, if hell is true. Any means are justifiable which may save man from that horrible doom. Surely we should not hesitate to knock a man down if by so doing we preserved him from throwing himself over a precipice. Belief in hell takes all beauty from virtue, who cares for obedience only rendered through fear no true love of good is wrought in man by the fear of hell and outward respectability is of little worth when the heart and the desires are unpurified we may add that the fear of hell is a very slight practical restraint no man thinks himself really bad enough for hell and it is so far off that everyone intends to repent at the last and so escape it far more restraining is the proclamation of the stern truth that in the popular sense of the word, there is no such thing as the forgiveness of sins, that as a man sows, so shall he reap, and that broken laws avenge themselves without exception. Belief in hell stifles all inquiry into truth by setting a premium on one form of belief, and by forbidding another under frightful penalties. If it be true, as it is true, that all who do not believe this shall perish everlastingly, then I ask... Is it not worth while to believe? So says a clergyman of the Church of England. Thus he presses his people to accept the dogma of the deity of Jesus, not because it is true, but because it is dangerous to deny it. And this difficulty meets us every day. If we urge inquiry, we are told, it is dangerous. If we suggest a difficulty, we are told, it is safer to believe. And so this doctrine of hell chains down men's faculties and palsies their intellects and they dare not seek for truth at all, lest he who is truth should cast them into hell for it. It may perhaps be said by many that I have attacked this dogma with undue vehemence and with excessive warmth. I attack it thus because I know the harm that it is doing, because it saddens the righteous hearts and clouds the face of God, 
Only those who have realised hell, and realising it, have believed in it, know the awful shadow with which it darkens the world. There are many who laugh at it, but they have not felt its power, and they forget that a dogma which is only ludicrous to them is weighing heavily on many a tender heart and sensitive brain. Hell drives many mad. To others it is a lifelong horror. It pales the sunlight with its lurid flames. It blackens the earth with the smoke of its torment. It makes the devil an actual presence. It transforms God into an enemy, eternity into an awful doom. It takes the spring out of all pleasures. It poisons all enjoyments. It spreads gloom over life, and enshrouds the tomb in horror unspeakable. Only those who have felt the anguish of this nightmare know what it is to wake up into the sunlight and find it is only a disordered dream of the darkness. They only know the glorious liberty of heart and soul, with which they lift up smiling faces to meet the smile of God, when they can say from the depths of their glad hearts, I believe that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I believe that all mankind is safe, cradled in the everlasting arms. End of chapter 6